Life's busy. Take this deck. There's heaps to do on it. Like, um, polishing off this wine. That's tough. Life's pretty good with a Trex deck. Composite decking with no hard maintenance. Trex, the world's number one decking brand. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the show. Thanks to our friends at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Well, today, we're joined by a woman who holds the rare title of having coaching success in two elite women's sports, the WNBL and the AFLW, but it's in football where Beck Goddard has made her name as a player, umpire, and a coach. Beck was the inaugural coach and inaugural premiership coach of the Adelaide Crows, and her amazing journey has now taken her to Hawthorne, where she's preparing to lead the Hawks into their maiden AFLW season this August. Beck, welcome. Thanks a lot for your time. Oh, thanks for having me. I, I feel like a bit of an imposter when you talk about the WNBL one because I really don't. I still, I still feel like I don't know much about basketball, despite the amazing season I had there. We will get to that. We'll get to that. But for the here and now, we can now finally say for certain. That an 18-team AFLW season is going to start on August 25, which means, as I'm sure you're aware, the clock's ticking. How's life for you at the moment? <laughs> it's pretty hectic, actually. You know, you've got to try and work out, like get food in when you can, do your exercise when you can, <laughs> because otherwise it's just uh, it's footy 24-7. And, um, you know, I, re- I resigned from the AFP um, back in December to be able to work full-time in footy. And I actually feel like I'm busier now working full-time in footy than I was when I had two jobs, working in footy and working for the AFP. So it's been, it has been a long time coming. I mean, how would you describe what you're feeling at the moment? Is it, a, is it a bit of anxiety? Is it some excitement, I'm sure? Are you a tad nervous? Is it all of them? Uh, you know, it's like that great saying from Friday Night Lights, we don't get nervous, we just get ready. And, <laughs> um, and so, so every day is just, um, you know, something new about... We, we're coming in at season seven. But for us, that means we don't start at season one. Like we don't, we want to actually catch up and make sure that we're starting at the appropriate level for the players and have that elite environment, not making all of the mistakes or things that we learned along the way from season one onwards. You know what I mean? So that sort of sets the tone a little bit differently to make sure that we're we're ready to go. Yeah. So if the saying is um, "Don't get nervous, just get ready," how's your shopping list looking <laughs> then? Because the game is awash with player movement, uh, of course, as you'd expect, with four new teams coming in. So I know Sophie Locke, Bridget Deed, uh, uh, Zoe Barbacos have joined your club as well. But I'm sure you'd have the bait in the water for quite a few more. Yeah, well, we just uh, came to the end of expansion signing recently, and. Um, you know, we felt like we did really well in that in that period, and we've got some really good experience to to go around those girls that you've just mentioned, the the young young ones in Sophie Locke and Zoe and, and Bridget. Um, and you know, sign and trade periods, I think, going to be pretty hectic over the next couple of weeks. But like I keep telling my my nemesis at Essendon now, Natalie Wood, <laughs> we want the number one pick. <laughs> um, and um, you know, we've we've carefully done our list management. Um, that's that's what we want. We want the best young talent um, in Victoria to come to Hawthorne and really take the game to the next level. What I like is that you're working with Hawthorne coach Sam Mitchell too, and I say with with emphasis because it's not alongside or it's not separate to. It's a collaborative approach at Hawthorne, isn't it? 
it is. Um, and we're just like two coaches. So I feel like maybe like those, you know, those two crazy old guys on the Muppets, Sattler and Waldorf. But sometimes I feel like if anyone was recording this conversation with Sam and I, they would think it was uh, quite amusing. But um, yeah, you know, Sam and I spent some time together at Box Hill coaching um, our respective VFL sides last season. And it, we feel like it's the dawn of a new era at Hawthorne. You know, he started the same year that I've started. Um, we're both, you know, about to take our coaching journeys to the next level and, you know, building something um, really powerful that hopefully withstands the test of time and, um, you know, looking at what our, our coaching legacies look like together. And um, that's, that's really exciting for, for myself and I know that Sam feels the same. You've been in the men's coaches box too, haven't you? I think Easter Monday game against the Cats, which, which is always a big occasion. I've, I've had a few times in there now um, and I, and because I am actually a Hawthorne supporter, you know, have been growing up, I yes. named my firstborn Beagle Crawford. Yes. That's how much I love the Hawks. <laughs> um, I had to really quickly take myself out of the fact that I wasn't at home on the couch watching the game <laughs> like you normally would on a yelling, Easter Monday. Yelling out. <laughs> yeah, there were some moments in the box. Um, but, you know, I've had, had some really great experiences. I, um, you know, uh, a few weeks ago when we played Essendon, um, wasn't obviously a, gr- a great performance for us, but um, Robert Harvey was out sick and... Um, watching the game from the couch and I was on the phone in the box on the Zoom call to him um, helping him with his midfield messaging. So I've had some amazing opportunities since I've been here, getting to go to training, see how they plan all their sessions, do their game reviews, sit around the selection table. Um, it's just like reg- regular coach work and um, I'm welcome every day in that and ask for my opinion on on what I think too. Gee, that's so good, isn't it? And and since you got to Hawthorne, maybe going back a, a little bit here, is, was it a shock to the system? Because you hadn't been, and we'll revisit this, you hadn't been in this world, this high-performance world for a few years. Um, yeah, it was. So I guess, you know, I officially started uh, the start of April and I had been out of high-performance for a long time. You know, 2018, 2019, WNBL season was was the last time that I'd been in the high-performance space. Mm. Um, and, yeah, sort of coaching in the NEFL, um and in the VFLW as well but it's not the same as when you're working with full-time athletes. Um, and so I feel like I've, I've come in and, you know, re- remembered how to do that. Um, I don't think you ever forget, but it's good to really freshen up and make sure you're, you're still relevant and you know what you're talking about with footy. And, and that's what I've been able to do since I've been here. How does it compare to Adelaide? And, and specifically, we'll get to the Crows properly in a moment, of course, but are there similarities between the two in that you're, you know, you are starting from scratch, really. I know you spoke about the season seven element earlier, but you're trying to create an environment and you're trying to create an elite environment. There's a bunch of relative strangers coming together for the first time. Has the time at the Crows in this regard helped you in more recent times in these early days at Hawthorne? Oh, 100%. And I've really been, even, you know, sort of looking at some of my old notes um, from when I started at Adelaide, I've, I've been doing that over the last week, just to... To remember what it was like because people always say to me oh you know bet that the culture at adelaide you know must be amazing and you know you, you're part of that and um you know got to set that environment you know how do you do it like it's some kind of golden goose hmm. how do you set the, the culture um and i the answer is is that there's not one single thing um every place you go to has got an environment um or a culture sometimes it's a good good one sometimes it's not a great one sometimes it's it's pretty neutral um but every day that you come into it is an opportunity to to make it um better and make it a place where people want to come and um and so that's really been one of the the pillars of of starting here at Hawthorne is having those um professional standards um and love showing that love that you want to be here 
um, and that's what will will sort of form the base of of the house. Yeah, and even though you've done it, well, this is your second time. It's a unique phase that you're in at the moment. It's more than coaching aside at the moment, isn't it? Because for all those things you mentioned, it's it's management, it's relationships, it's introducing these women and girls and and young women in many instances into an elite environment for the first time. You you're more than a coach. I don't know how many hats you've got, but it's more than one. Yeah, and I actually think that that's true of any coach. Like, I don't know one person, one head coach mm. that is just, oh, I just coach football. Mm. There's so many different parts to that. It is, you know, media management, it's your player relationships, it's um, checking your equipment, um, it's doing your training plans, it's having good relationships, like knowing all the staff and, and their commitments and how they like to work. And um, it's, it's a, it's a, it is a, it's a really spread out role. Um, and it comes back to, to people management first and foremost, and, you know, having great relationships with people. So you've led a fascinating, and I've got to say, busy life in your, I hope you don't mind me saying this, 43 years on this earth, Beck, but you, you were with the <laughs> AFP. Revealing my age. Yeah. <laughs> As you mentioned, the AFP for two decades, I think it wasn't. And um, so not just the police, but the federal police, which you gave up to join the Hawks. I'm keen to get into that a little bit later, but the big issues here off the top, I really want to know what's happened to your music career, Beck, because I believe you <laughs> are or were the lead vocalist for your band Icon. Now, please tell me you're still touring in some way, shape or form. <laughs> oh, I wish. I wish I was. Um, I did move the guitar to Melbourne, so I, I've still got that with me. But all my bandmates are, are back in Canberra right. and um, playing quite successfully in their own cover well, bands. Time it's, to go solo absolutely then. Absolutely. Yeah, look, no, we, we don't. There was never an album in the works. Um, trust me, no one needs to hear that. But um, yeah, look, it was a, a very, it's, it's always been a, a passion of mine. I actually learned guitar, how to play guitar when I was six years old in a, in a church group at school. So I didn't have any lessons. I just sort of picked it up and then just kept going with the with the church group and strum along. And I fell into sort of singing one day when our singer quit and we had a gig that night. And I thought my brother actually said to me, he was playing bass guitar in the band at the time. He said, oh, well, you're, going to, you're just going to have to sing and then we'll just work it out afterwards what we do and just sort of kept going. Well, we know that Sam Mitchell's predecessor, Alistair Clarkson, was known to get the guitar out and strum for the boys from time to time. Will you be tempted to do that on any sort of team bonding pursuits? Um, well, look, I, I did it once at Adelaide and the, the Adelaide girls worked out, you know, pretty early on in the piece that I was musical, but I, I said to them, well, you're not getting to see it unless we win a premiership. That was my <laughs> promise to them. And, right. and sure enough, after we won the premiership that night on the Gold Coast, a guitar appeared out of nowhere and I had to get up in front of the entire grand final after party and uh, sing Simply the Best by Tina Turner. <laughs> they never forget, do they? Brilliant. So I think that was probably like my last my last, uh, right. my last, gig. Sounds like a pretty good way to go out for the here and now anyway. Hey, you're listening to This yeah. Is Your Journey. It's thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. So Beck Goddard has been around footy as long as she can remember. We're going to go back to Canberra and the start of Beck's journey right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit Tobin Brothers Brothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit TobinBrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, it's great to have your company on This Is Your Journey, made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. We're chatting to Hawthorne AFLW coach Beck Goddard. So, Beck, as I said before, you've always been around the game, around footy. What's your earliest memory? I think your dad, Rob, played for and coached Belconnen, and I think maybe your late grandfather too. So, 
What's the first thing that comes to mind, whether it be a sight, a smell, what someone <laughs> said, anything at all when it comes to footy? It's definitely a smell. It's the urinals at Jamison Oval. Oh, 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 the urinals. <laughs> it's a very pungent smell. I think the same old change rooms are still there. Yep. And that blended in with Denkarab. I, I clearly remember being in the change rooms and um, watching a, a, one of Belconnen's great coaches, Brian Reid, um, after making a, a speech at the end of the game where Belconnen had won it by a point. And he, he made this amazing speech at the end of it. He said, we won it. We won it by the end of a bee's dick. <laughs> and I remember like tugging on dad's arm at the time and saying, dad, how big is that? <laughs> and dad was like, shh. You it's know, not like, a 10-goal win, put it that way. Yeah, 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 yeah that's right. Um, but like, It's funny what you remember as yeah. a kid. But yeah, I, I just grew up at Jamison Oval. Um, I think I was actually quite responsibly conceived in football off-season. So that would mean I was born in the middle of a Canberra winter, the middle of a football season, <laughs> not to jeopardise finals or anything. And, and um, grew up at the ground and ran the scoreboard, got splinters in my hands for a free sausage. And yeah. um, Can of Coke. Just, just loved it, you know, because um, – there wasn't a competition with girls. I played with my brother's team. He played for Belconnen up until I was about thirteen, yeah. um, and just blended in with all the all the kids. And um, yeah, then stopped. So had to try and find another way to to keep involved at footy. Oh, great memories, aren't they? And, and you touched on church earlier. So yours was a a Catholic upbringing, a Catholic uh, household growing up. Yes, it was a, a Catholic upbringing. I um I remember my earliest victory. Um, I was a, a good little uh, Catholic girl, uh, had long hair down my back. And I remember saying to mum, mum, I, I really want to get my hair cut like Princess Diana. Right. And she said, we well, have to wait till your first Holy Communion for the photos. And then if you still want your hair cut like Princess Diana, you can have it. And so um, true to a word, I had my first Holy Communion, had the photos. And um, the very next day I said to mum, now mum can have my hair cut like Princess Diana. And sure enough, look at me. I still look like Princess Diana to this day. I've had uh, had my hair cut short ever since. Just, just I love that. I just straying ever so slightly away from the game for a moment. Just with that Catholic upbringing, as you got older, and you know, we all discover ourselves. Did that upbringing present? How will I frame it? Some sort of, um, some sort of barrier you, to discovering who you were. Yeah, you can say it. Um, yes. I think is is the short of it. Um, but I didn't know that at the time, that right. that's what that barrier was because, you know, we'd go to church every Sunday. We got to sort of our teenage years and um, my brother and I were a bit harder to get out of bed and so mum sort of gave up trying to drag us out of bed to go to church, much to the disappointment to my, to my late nana now. But I think later in my adult life, um, especially after I started, um, you know, being in some horrific crime scenes and um, questioning, you know, a few things that, you know, what was going on at work and, and why bad things happened. I certainly went back to church and, um, but I never went to communion um, because I felt uncomfortable with my sexuality and my Nana was in the church and I didn't want to make the priest uncomfortable and yeah. a whole heap of things. And uh, as the years have gone on and I've got a, 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 a second cousin who's a Catholic priest now, and we had a great chat at my Nana's funeral. He said, you should always, you should always go to communion. You should never feel uncomfortable. That's not, that's not what the church is about. So, um, you know, I still really, um, open to Catholicism and, and the and the things, the good things that it brings in life. Um, uh, but it did certainly sort of create some things as I was growing up. I, that I, but I wasn't quite sure of what that was. Yeah, I mean, we all go on those journeys of discovery, don't we? And I think you were candid enough, relatively recently, in an interview with Fairfax to say that you were actually back when you were far younger. Of course, the most homophobic mm. person you knew. Hundred percent, I was. 
Um, and I look back on that with like embarrassment now, mm. like why, why, why was I, why was I like that? Um, and I think it took um, being around, like I was a, a young young person coming into football and, and meeting some amazing uh, role models that I was playing with that had gone through their lives and hidden who they were and now we're sort of starting to feel comfortable with that, um, that, that it took me out of, out of that space and open to other ways of living and, and realising who I was and, and how I wanted to live comfortably. So just with your playing, obviously, as you said, you played uh, all through juniors until you were 13 when, unfortunately, and thankfully, girls don't have this issue anymore. The absence of a comp forced you to stop and look elsewhere. So you returned seven years later when Canberra got its first women's comp, but you suffered a bad injury, didn't you? What happened here? Yeah, it took me a while. I, I, I played quite a few seasons, um, but I ended up um, breaking my, my tibia um, in a hyperextension, so oh. cracking cracking the tibia and splitting the shin. Um and ended up having to have surgery straight away. We put, put a couple of screws in the top of the shin. And um, if anybody's had those types of injuries, you know that it's a very long recovery process. Um, and I essentially had to learn to to run again, how to run. Um, and I never really sort of got back into footy thinking, I need, mm. that's what I want to do. Um, so I turned to umpiring. Yeah. Tell us about umpiring this. Umpiring men's football. Yeah. Um, well, I wasn't very good to start with. Um and I'm sure, I'm sure there's two players out there that love to send me a message every now and then about a shit decision or something. Like that. Yeah, <laughs> some people never let it go. Good on um, you though. That's that's re- that's right out of your comfort zone though, isn't it? Really, umpiring. But it is, it, and yeah. you know, I, I've literally heard every insult under the sun that you could throw at me. I have heard there is not one thing that you could say to me that would offend me. Now, I think you know that's coming from a life of policing as well. You know, police mm. don't get offended. Um, we protect those who do, and. Um, and the same thing was happening umpiring, but it was also practicing my decision making under like real speed. Um, and I felt like that was a really good skill to have. Um, and from a coaching perspective, that's where I learned some of the best tactics I've ever seen because I wasn't a particularly good runner. And so to umpire at the highest level, I had to kind of learn to read the football um, a lot quicker than my male male counterparts umpiring um so i could get selected to make the best decision you know making the best decisions and i ended up you know getting up to the up to the needle i was eventually delisted because my bouncing wasn't up to scratch right hopefully they get rid of that silly yeah. rule soon um yeah. and um you know uh, i ended up umpiring 187 first grade games in canberra in men's football wow. and um you know formed some amazing friendships and you know still talk to to some of the guys I used to umpire with to this day. Now, what was it work? Was it work with the police that took you to Adelaide? What took you there? Because when you got there, you yeah. walked, we worked as the forwards coach for Woodville West Torrens and the under-18s, the boys' team. Yeah, I did. It was work that took me to Adelaide. I went over, I became the uh, sergeant of the joint anti-child exploitation team, which is a joint initiative between um, the federal government and state police in each of the state and territories. Um, and I uh, worked with South Australia Police on that and... Um, was working shift work um, and I'd, I'd come from coaching football in the Neeful in Canberra um, and one of the players I coached in Canberra had played at Woodville West Torrens and so he hooked me up with the footy club, went through a, a short interview process and ended up coaching with Shane Reardon who is, um, you know, a really close friend of mine and a great mentor um, as the years have gone on into AFLW and, um, yeah, I was coaching the forward lines uh, in the under-18 centre yeah. of Bexonce, which is where we know a lot of the young fellas get drafted from now. Um, had an amazing, amazing year um, coaching um, Brennan Cox, Tyson Stengel, uh, Jack Lacocious came through that year. 
Um, and in that same year, um, met with the Adelaide Crows and obviously went on to, to coach their, their first AFLW side. You're with This Is Your Journey. It's brought to you by Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You can find them online at tobinbrothers.com.au. Well, as you just heard, Beck Goddard is about to create AFLW history with the Adelaide Crows. That's ahead of us next. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. We're with inaugural Adelaide Premiership coach, Beck Goddard. So, Beck, it's 2016. The AFLW's been formed. It's eight teams for the following year, and you are one of only two female head coaches. But this must have been an immensely proud moment for you. I sort of felt a bit like I'd almost disrespect my sisters because I'd given away women's footy, like my involvement in women's footy, because I thought it was never going to be yeah. like a job or I was never going to actually have a chance to coach it at, you know, at a, at a high level. So when this opportunity came to to coach at the Crows, um, I it was I knew it was a once in a lifetime opportunity and I couldn't wait to get get back into it. But I also had grave fears because coming from a history of women's football, I knew that the South South Australian and Northern Territory women's football was not of a very good standard. Um, at the national championships, South Australia and Northern Territory used to get trashed by 15, 20 goals by Victoria. So I thought to myself, we're going to be really up against it here at the Crows. Um, like we'll put together a team, but I can't promise wins. What can I promise? Oh, a good environment, culture, laying the house, the, you know, the base of the house. Well, then the hard work really began, though, didn't it? So to get ready for 2017 and their inaugural season, now you're still working with the Federal Police at this stage, mind you, the full-time job in itself, Mm -hmm. of course. You're trying to coach players that you mentioned split across multiple states and territories. Do you look back on this time and just think this was just crazy? That was crazy. Like, I was working shift work. I was working um, day shift and afternoon shift. I would go to training on my um, dinner break and then go back to work. Um, and then, like, just start it, start it all again. When were you um, sleeping? Like, it's just that's what the players have been doing too. You know, that's what they've been doing for six seasons. Yeah, some of them. And yeah, that's, yeah. That's a, that's remarkable, and that's why you know this the landmark pay deal that they they got in the, in this month. That it's what they deserve. It's almost back pay a bit for, for what they've done, and hopefully they get more into the future because it wasn't just me that was that was you know doing it. It was the players. Yeah, the yeah. Well, they're working too. Yeah, almost. working and studying, and uh, so they were obviously an obvious set of challenges. You had a diverse group, and just about all of them new to an elite environment. Some new to the game, even there were cultural differences, geographical hurdles. So the list of challenges must have been off the page. It was. We made Zoom cool before COVID, to be honest. That's what happened. Um, <laughs> you know, we had a lot of meetings on video that, you know, really we didn't work in football like that. Um, well, I'd, I'd never done that. You know, my first training session, there was a drone flying above my head. I was mic'd up. There was a camera in my face. You know, the girls all had GPS units on. Um, I'd only ever run training with a whiteboard and a bit of a look on how the players looked. Oh, they're tired. Um, that'll do. We'll stop that drill. So it was all, you know, completely different for me and um, as well as the, the players. And, um, of course, I got I got lucky in that I had the, the biggest rookie steal of the competition. <laughs> I don't think anything like that will ever happen again. We're going to get to this. Aaron Phillips. Yes, yes. 
um, and we just we loved we loved it. We just loved it together. We loved coming into a place um, where we felt like we could win, and uh, that's what we did. You did. You won your first four matches, but then you you lost your next two consecutive, and one of those losses would come against the side that you meet in the grand final in Brisbane. But was this the pinch point in your season? Did it, in that fortnight of consecutive losses, how challenging was that for you to ensure that the cracks didn't widen, if you like? Uh, well, I think at the end of the first loss to Brisbane, we'd only lost by five points, I think it was, yeah. or six points, like a kick, yeah. a kick in it. We hadn't played particularly well. And I remember clearly walking into the change rooms and just shutting the door and uh, all of the staff emptied out. So it's just uh, myself and the players. And we all sat, sat around and just discussed that we knew we would play them again. So we didn't talk about how the process that was going to happen. We just knew that the time was going to come again um, and that we needed to um, get better in those clutch moments to make sure that, that, that it didn't happen again. So it was it was almost like a sort of a, a premonition, you could say, but all of us felt felt that, that that game was a bit like, well, that's all right because we're going to get them again. And then, of course, we went to Darwin the following week and we lost to Melbourne. Yeah. And, you know, the alarm bells sort of stuttering a bit. I'm like, well, we're going to beat Collingwood next week, and if we don't, we're not we're not going to be in in the grand final. So, um, yeah, we went to Darwin and lost. Um, I called training off, but we got back from Darwin, and I just cancelled training that night. Adele what? was in Adelaide, why playing at Adelaide Oval, and all the girls had mostly had tickets. So, I thought to myself, oh, let's not train before, let's just have the night off, like freshen up. Came back to training, beat Collingwood, made the first grand final. Must have been a good concert. Well, I even went. Um, we all we all went. We're all sitting in different parts of the stadium. Some are in groups. Some are yeah on their own. And um, it was just um, it's kind of just something I think we need. We all needed just to freshen up and take the pressure off a little bit. Yeah, and it, and it worked. So you obviously you finished second. Brisbane undefeated. Oh, their only blemish was a draw. It's easy to forget. No finals, of course. So straight into a grand final. It was, I think, it was it was at Metricon on March twenty fifth, but it was supposed to be at the Gabba. But there were a few surface concerns. So you get yourself to Metricon. What are your memories, uh, Beck, of grand final day? Uh, before we get to the game, what are your memories of the day? What comes back to you? Well, to start with, I actually felt like it was a bit of fate because um, the Gabba was unavailable because Adele had been there. <laughs> So the ground was ripped up because Adele had come out in a secret suitcase or whatever she'd wheeled into the into the Gabba. So that was the first thing. I was like, "This is I'm, I'm happy with this because I am a bit superstitious as a coach. I'm like, yeah, I like this. You owe Adele a fair bit um, by the sounds here. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> we both sing the same too. Um, <laughs> and I got to grand final day. Um, my recollections were got up really early, like woke up really early and I went with um, one of um, my assistant coaches from Darwin, Colin Gwynn, and we went out to the driving range right near our hotel and we just uh, got 100 balls each and just smacked 100 balls down the driving range like it was really early in the morning the dew was still on the golf course and as we were sort of hitting hitting through our, our second bucket of balls I saw a group of girls our, our players walking up past us and they were like morning morning coaches and so everybody was in the same position we'd all gotten up early because we couldn't couldn't sleep and we're trying to sort of relieve a bit of stress and then we just got into the game day do you hit them well yeah, I go all right, actually. Um, just got to keep my head down. Yeah. I, I don't like playing like a full game of golf, but there's something quite cathartic about getting your troubles away down in a golf course. 
Indeed, you get the anxiety away, don't you? If there's any yeah. of that, so the yeah. game, the game itself is tight. It was always going to be tight. You win by a goal, but I think you kick four eleven, and you have six more scoring shots. The, the game itself, what comes to mind? Oh, I had heartburn literally <laughs> the whole game. I walked into the coach's box, and there was a new um, cup of snacks in the coach's box. I'd never had popcorn in the coach's box before, so I was off my game straight away. Like, who's who's brought this popcorn and, and the stuff? Like, oh, the girls thought you you might want to enjoy the show, so they put some popcorn in a cup for me instead of my usual, you know, nuts and yep. whatever. And um, I, I never felt like as the week progressed and throughout the game. I never felt like we weren't in control. I never thought like we were going to lose. It was very tense, but at no stage did I have that that feeling of doom that can often come over a coach's box, like how are we going to win? How are we going to maintain this lead? I never never had that throughout the whole the whole game. So um, I, I felt confident that we were going to be able to do it because in the in the big moments, I felt like the resilience of our players was was next level and they were literally going to fight to the death. Opens the door now for Allen. It's a wide open forward 50. She can go to the run of Van Hagen. Ashmore to try and run her down. She won't have the distance on the kick. It's a two on two. Phillips and Sedgenry versus Kasler and Conan. Phillips stayed back, did the Bradbury and kicked the goal. Two goals the difference. Harris, oh, good take. Guess who? Wowee. I don't even have to look at the number to know that that was Aaron Phillips. 15 seconds. Brisbane need to get numbers to the contest. Phillips gets it out. They've got all the numbers back here. They need to gather. Get it inside 50 quickly. Hilda Brandis has to get it on the boot. Can they get a mark inside 50? Here's Frederick Traub. Couldn't quite. Crows win. The Adelaide Crows are the first AFLW Premiers and the admiration of a nation indeed. So you had the, in the end, you had the league uh, best and fairest and the MVP in Aaron Phillips. You had the rising star in Ebony Marinoff. You had a, we could go on for a while, you had a glut of other player awards. So for all your justifiable concerns, this was a pretty special group in the end. Oh, they're remarkable players and um, I'm so happy for for where they are now and getting what they deserve. Where, you know, obviously some of them have now moved on from the Crows, some of them have retired and um, we've got a special friendship, um, all of us as a group, and um, we get to get back together. And I have been lucky enough to, to go back. You know, I get invited to, to Adelaide functions and I get to catch up with the premiership players um, every now and then. And it's just, you know, it's a moment in history that I actually don't think I really appreciate at the time because as a coach, sometimes you're a bit crazy about winning. You're always trying to work out when you're going to get your next win. Um, but it's... Nobody. It's it's rare that you get the first. It's really rare that you get the first. Um, and that was that was amazing for me. I'll be always be grateful to the Adelaide Football Club for hiring me. We're talking to Beck Goddard on this is your journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives. We'll chart Beck's path to Hawthorne and back to the game after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund. For Tobin Brothers Funerals, visit tobinbrothers.com.au. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives.
It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Beck Goddard, how good is it, has been our guest today. So, Beck, after the 2017 Premiership, you coached Adelaide the following year in 2018. I think you finished fifth in the end. And then you stepped down. What, what was the reason for that? Um, look, there, there are a few, but I'd been transferred to Adelaide with the AFP only on a two-year term. And so my owning area was was Canberra. That's where the, obviously the seat of government is. And so that that term had come up. And if I wanted to stay in Adelaide, then um, my work was going to have to change. And so um, where women's football is now compared to where it was then, there wasn't a an opportunity where I could have remained at the Adelaide Football Club and met all the financial pressures of my life mm. at the time. Um, and continue to thrive and actually grow in my coaching career. So I had to go back to Canberra um, and I made that decision. Um, in the end, I was I was very sad and, and disappointed that I was going to have to leave, um, but it was the right thing to do at the time and in the context of where um, my coaching was at. And just, I'm not sure if it's unrelated to that, but did you go into something of it, you know, after all the euphoria and, and the excitement of winning the premiership, was the, in the wake of that, did you, come down a bit i mean was it wouldn't say the term downward spiral but did looking back did you have your challenges after the premiership personally no it was ter- it was a terrible time for me um i really struggled with trying to understand how because uh, once once i won that first with the girls and we i thought to myself that's it i've proven myself to the football world that i can coach at the t- at the top level but in fact it was a quick reality check that you actually know where you're not further advanced than where you were. Um, and that was very hard for me to accept because when we look at um, what happens in the, in the men's football space, if you win a, a premiership, like you, you're set, you're set for your, your, your career and, um, you know, financially for the rest of your life and so forth. And um, that just, that just didn't happen to me. I was, I was just back to, back to work, back to work. And how did that manifest itself in your day to day? Um, I was just really, I didn't like football. Mm. I didn't like looking at it. I didn't like hearing the commentary. I'd turn the TV on and i just hear all the guys just commentating and it, footy kind of changed for me. Um, I was like, why aren't women, I started to really critically look at why aren't women in this game in different leadership positions, like in different areas? Why is this all just so blokey? Um, and so I just got put off by it. Like if I was going to watch the game, I'd put it on mute because I just didn't want to hear it um, if I did even want to watch it at all. Um, and so I just got stuck into work back in Canberra when um, I I got a call. I spoke. I was speaking at a, a Women in Sport forum for the ACT government and I got a phone call after it from um, Carrie Graff, who's a, a great friend and mentor of mine. She works at the University of Canberra as a director of sport there and, um, you know, a former Australian Opals coach herself um, in the WNBL. And she said, listen, I reckon you you and Paul Gorry have, have got to catch up. Um, he's coaching the Capitals and they need a, they need some help with their environment and I think you'd be a great assistant coach. And so I kind of, I thought this is, a, this is good. I need to, I love winning. I love sport. Why don't I just try something different? I caught up with Paul and, um ended up doing the season winning with them and, and winning a championship with them. Yeah, and have they they just come off a wooden spoon, a bottom place finish? Was it the immediate yeah. season prior? Yeah. They, they actually hadn't made finals, I think, in about eight seasons. And they've been a, historically a very successful um, 
basketball club, the, the Canberra Capitals. And so, you know, Paul was looking to do something innovative as well. Um, and he felt like I had something to offer with our, the way that we work in football from an environment perspective. And I learned so much from him and mm. how to handle um, elite athletes. So, you know, I was getting to coach amazing Olympians like Mariana Tolo, um, Kelsey Griffin, Leilani Mitchell, Kia Nurse, you know, a Canadian Olympian. Like what what, what, are, what opportunities that, that that was for me and then being able to bring some of the things in basketball um, back to football was just like a once-in-a-lifetime experience. So, Beck, that job right there, despite being obviously a totally different sport, helping out as an assistant, how much of it went into relighting the fire for you? You know, almost the perfect medicine, the tonic, if you like, away from the full-on nature of that AFLW stint that you mentioned you'd perhaps an element of burnout with. To then have this relight the fire, how key was that to where, if we talk about crossroad moments and sliding doors in people's journeys, was this one of them? 100%. Like it was it was key. I then um, I went to the AIS and did some high-performance coaching modules and I met a whole heap of women from other sports um, who were in the same position as me, you know, just trying to get ahead and, you know, prove themselves as, as valuable coaches and um, and it was through meeting that group of women and um, them encouraging me to, you got to get back into football um, that I that I started my way back, really. So Hawthorne's approach, I think, first came at some point in 2019. Where were you when they called for the first time? I was in Cambodia. I was working um, for the AFP over in Cambodia as a police advisor to the Cambodian National Police, um, and I didn't expect the call. Um, and it was the head of football, Rob McCartney, here at, here at Hawthorne and Daniel Napoli, the GM of VFL, and the two of them pitched to me on why Hawthorne um, would be a great place for me to to start coaching. So they 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 showed they didn't ask me to pitch them. They asked, they pitched to me on why they wanted me and why it was the place for women. And then we kept going. But hang on, you're you're by this point you're a superintendent. You're in Cambodia. This is a very 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 important job, and they're saying we want you to come and be our VFLW coach. I mean, with no disrespect to the VFLW competition, how did they sell the long term vision for you? Oh yeah, Hawthorne was um, you know they they're quite disappointed that they didn't apply for a license to start with in the AFLW, and I think that was a really big selling point for me about how they changed and, and you know, what what, they, what the vision was for the football club. So they were pretty upfront with me that this wasn't just VFLW, this was a step back to the AFLW and that once they got the licence, then that was that was going to be me. Um, and um, I, was only, I was only over in Cambodia for, I think, a period of about five months, so I knew I was always coming back, but... I wasn't quite sure what I was going to come back to and I ended up relocating to Melbourne with the AFP and was able to coach the VFLW at the same time. Um, the commitments obviously weren't as hectic as AFLW and um, that, that, that was how it happened. It's a massive decision, obviously. Did, did you agonise over it for a long period of time and when I say uh, it, leaving the AFP altogether? Leaving the AFP was a, a much more difficult decision Um than saying yes to coming to coach the, the VFLW because yeah. um, I was still able to work doing that. But once I got promoted to superintendent, um, you know, it's it's something that I'd, I'd have wanted for a long time in my career with the AFP and I felt like I'd put it on hold a little bit because of my time in Adelaide, um, you know, doing trying to balance both both sides of football and, and work. And um, I was back in Canberra. Um, you know, my family is all there. My friends are in Canberra and... Um, 
you know, I'd, I'd just come out of having COVID. I had the Delta and, um, you know, I wasn't really well. And I, I was like, are you crazy? Like you want to leave a stable job that you've worked so hard to get promoted into for 20 years to go and work full-time in football when you had, you know, when it wasn't that far ago that you really didn't like football? Like, are you crazy? Anyway, as soon as I made that decision, I felt like a weight was off my shoulders and haven't looked back once. But how great is it that you can actually, you're in the position to make that decision? Whereas as we are talking about before, when you left the Crows, you couldn't have made that decision. So how great is it that the game actually gives you something to agonise over now? Um, it is. And I just, you know, like I, I know I, I'm, I said I'm thankful to Adelaide for the opportunity I am, but I'm also, you know, so thankful to, to Hawthorne and um, that the way that they, they care and value um, and have got that vision and, and were able to just show me what being back in football is going to be like. Um, and I, I wouldn't have done it, I think, except for the fact there are some great people here that really believe in me and my coaching and um, having women at the football club. So given that you're a self-described winning addict, when you're starting a new club and a new side, do you only win on the scoreboard? Oh, no, you don't. You win in many other ways. You, you just, you've just got to count. you just got to count your little wins. Um, and um, that might be in, you know, lots of different different ways. Like I, I'm even I, – I get a bit stupid, you know, with sometimes my, my winning habits. Like I, I've got my, on my alarm clock on my phone, I change the, the alarm tone to a round of applause when you get out of bed, you know. Wow. I mean, that's um, not to be I undersold. Said, I, was, I was saying to the club the other day, I feel like we should all have a walk-in song to work, you know, that your Bluetooth connects as you come through the doors and you get your Katy Perry or whatever it is, like we work, you know. Um, it, it's like you can you can feel like a winner in so many different ways. Um, you know, this morning I got to have a coffee with um, our number one um, recruit, Bridget Deed, just to catch up on what she was doing. And like I look at that I'm like, well, this is my job now. I get to sit down and have a coffee with one of the girls that um, plays for Hawthorne. Amazing. So this is it, isn't it? I mean, when I ask you what you hope to create at Hawthorne, you're doing it now, aren't you? I mean, look, for all I know, lightning could strike twice and we could get a repeat of, <laughs> of your, your first year at Adelaide. But more than that, you this is exactly what you're hoping to build and create for, for the long term. Yeah, and I want to – I want to – I I know um, – you know, I found it hard finding role models myself when I was coming through footy and I, I take my role really seriously as a role model too. So um, it's something that I want the players to see me and go, yeah, you know, like Beck can do that. I, you know, I want to play footy for 20 years and earn a million bucks each season, what it, whatever that is. I want. And then one day I'm going to coach and um, I'll be at Hawthorne because it's a great place to be um, for women. I, I just want that for them too. Beck, great, so great to talk to you. I mean, what a journey you've had. There's been success, there's been discovery, and now just so much to look forward to ahead of Hawthorne's foray into AFLW. Well done on all you've achieved, and good luck, of course, most importantly, with what's to come. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Go Hawks. Thank you for joining us also. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. Jump online. You can find them at tobinbrothers.com.au, and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey. Want to witness the world's biggest football game? Head to iCanWin.com.au, predict Australia's score with a crystal ball, and it could be you and a friend at the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022 semifinals, all thanks to McDonald's. Maccas, together and loving it. TNCs apply.